What are you concerned about? I'm sure we all have a list of things of, uh, with different levels of concern, some very minor, some quite high levels of concern. In some cases, such as perhaps the press or politicians, we can see what they're concerned about by what they say or what they write. But it isn't necessarily easy to see how much they're concerned about anything beyond how it'll affect their ratings or their votes. But how can you tell what re is really of concern to a Christian? John Stott said the best way was to study the content and intensity of their prayers. And he went on to say, we all pray about what concerns us, and we evidently aren't concerned about what we don't pray for. Prayer expresses desire. For example, when Paul prayed for the salvation of his Israelite kinsfolk, he wrote of his heart's desire and prayer to God for them, Romans 10 verse 1. There's an old hymn that puts it, prayer is the soul's sincere desire, unuttered or expressed. This is certainly true of Paul's prayer in our passage this morning. We get our first sign of it in verse 14. The normal Jewish posture for prayer was standing. Kneeling or prostrating yourself was a sign of great urgency and distress. But beyond that, you get the same sense of urgency as you see the words pour out of Paul in this prayer. You can almost imagine his scribes struggling to keep up as, he, as Paul gets caught up and carried away in his chain of thought, overwhelmed by the amazing things that we all, as Christians, have available to us through God's love and his desire. And Paul's desire for the Ephesians and for us is that they would recognize and make use of these things. Paul's first thought is the way that the Father has done what is humanly impossible. And he's brought two irreconcilable groups, the Jews and the Gentiles, together in one family, the church. The Jews historically had a concept of the Gentiles eventually coming to Jerusalem to worship God based on scriptures such as Isaiah 2, verses 2 to 3. In the days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised above the hills. All the nations shall stream to it. Many people shall say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Yet they never saw this as a relationship of equals. The Gentiles were always going to be the second class. For example, they would quote Zechariah 8, and 23. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, ten men from nations of every language shall take hold of a Jew, grasping his garment and saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Through Christ, however, God has made both Jews and Gentiles, including us, equal partners as members of God's adopted family, the church. And on that basis, Paul prays for his readers to be strengthened with power through the Holy Spirit in verses 16 and 18. The early church faced various struggles as they grew. 
They were frequently opposed by the Jewish communities in the Gentile cities. For example, in Acts 17, verses 1 to 9, you can see how Paul and Silas were driven out of Thessalonica by the Jews. The church was often the target of persecution. They needed power, therefore, to stand firm in their faith. We can see this in Colossians 1, 11 to 12. May you be made strong with all the strength that comes from his glorious power. And may you be prepared to endure everything with patience while joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. Now, we don't normally face that type of direct persecution in the UK. But there are nevertheless things going on in our country that we should treat perhaps as a warning sign. For example, some of the discussions about preventing radicalization and within the process for citizenship, where tests are being talked about for extremism that could easily be used to exclude Christians too. We also therefore should be prayed, praying to be strengthened, not only to face persecution should it come, but also to stand up against the things in our society that go against God's ways. And we should also pray for strengthening so that we can be effective and powerful witnesses. Be honest with yourself. How often do we not speak when we have an opportunity to witness? How often are we put off speaking by the risk of embarrassment or rejection? Just think, if Jesus had been as sensitive to those risks as we are, and as we can be at times, we'd still be lost in our sins. He faced continual opposition. He was called mad, not only by his opponents in John 10.20, but even his family were worried he'd gone mad in Mark 3.21. If Jesus could face that throughout his ministry and then go to the cross willingly for us, surely we can face more for him than we do and be more willing to share the good news. Paul then prays that the Ephesians would have Christ dwelling in their hearts through faith in verse 17. Now this might have you scratching your head a bit. Surely the readers of this letter were Christians and therefore already had Jesus indwelling them. To which the answer is yes, they would have done, just as we have. But many years ago, there was a small tract that went round and one of the things it illustrated was the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian in a diagram that showed Jesus either inside the person as a Christian or outside them as a non-Christian. But it had another pair of illustrations as well. One where Jesus was in a person, but the person themselves was still sitting on the throne of their lives. And the other where Jesus was not only in the person, but also on the throne of their life. If your memory is good and you can think back 15 months, you may remember we've got something similar in a poster in the corridor by the toilets in the church building. And the poster says, if God is the co-pilot of your life, you need to change seats. It's so easy for us to let Jesus into our lives, but not let him take charge. We want to be in control. Certainly some of the time, most of the time, if we're really honest. We don't want to surrender those things that we enjoy, but perhaps we shouldn't. We don't want to sacrifice the things that we enjoy, the things that are 
the things that we do, even things that are good, to do the best things, the things that God wants us to do. But this is the sin that's still at work in us if we let it. And even Paul struggled with this. He described it in Romans 7, 15 to 25. He said, I don't understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want. I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree the law is good. But in fact, it's no longer I that does it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is, in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now, if I do what I don't want, it's no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do what is good, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inmost self, but I see in my members, in my members another law at war with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Doesn't this sound familiar? The details may be different depending on our circumstances and our stage of our Christian journey, but we all face this ongoing struggle to live our lives as God wants, to be more like Jesus day by day. Jesus was quite blunt and to the point when he said to his disciples in Luke 9.23, if anyone wants to be my followers, let them deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. This wasn't an easy saying. And when we look at the context of the world Jesus was in, it was even harder. It was Roman practice to make the condemned person carry their own cross to the place of execution. They would be paraded through the street in full view. Everybody would know their fate. That the person themselves no longer had any control over where they were going and what was going to happen. The process was shameful and it would have been painful with the weight of the crossbeam resting on the cuts and bruises from the whipping they would have had shortly beforehand and the knowledge that just that few hundred yards further on they were going to be nailed to that piece of wood they were carrying. And this is what we've taken on by accepting Jesus. It's what we're called to do daily. And it's not something we can do in our own strength, which is why Paul makes this request that Christ dwell in the Ephesians' heart. But this isn't a standalone request. It links to what has gone before and to the second part of the passage. If we're to have power and strength from God, we need to know what to do with it, how to use it. Think back to Ephesians 2 verse 10, where Paul told us, we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. God has prepared good works for us to do, but we need to be able to see the world through God's eyes to see what these are for us. And it is something for us as individuals and for us as a church. And we need to have love as a fundamental basis for our life. 1 Corinthians 13, 1-3 says, If I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but don't have love, 
I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but don't have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions, and if I hand over my body so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. In Paul's prayer in this passage we're looking at today, he asks for his readers to be rooted and grounded in love. The Greek words that are used, the rooted, is a horticultural term. With firm, deep roots, a plant can prosper. Jeremiah, for example, described those who trust in the Lord, said they shall be like a tree planted by the water, sending out its roots by the stream. It will not fear when heat comes, and its leaves shall stay green. In the year of drought it is not anxious, and it does not cease to bear fruit. Jeremiah 17, 8. And grounded, it's, it's, root is the Greek word for foundations. A strong foundation is essential for a building to stand the test of time and the vagaries of nature. Jesus described the, in the parable of the wise and foolish builders the difference between those who hear his word and act on it and those who hear his word and don't act. And he used the illustration of the foundation there. He said, the one who hears and doesn't act is like a man who builds the house on the ground without a foundation. When the river bursts against it, immediately it fell, and great was the ruin of that house. If we have the strength and power from God, but we don't have the love of God for others, if we don't have that foundation of love, we can't do the work of God. We can see how much God loved us in John 3.16, where it said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that anyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. As we experience God's love, as we let ourselves be transformed by the Holy Spirit, be made more like Jesus, we will start seeing through his eyes and feeling the pain that sin and suffering causes God. And then what we do will be motivated by that God's that love, by God's love, and not by wrong motives. But we can only do this if we let Jesus truly be Lord of our lives, if we put him first. And if we don't let Jesus rule on our lives, don't let him be our Lord fully, we will struggle to use the power he gives us. We will struggle to recognize what he wants us to be doing. And we will fail in trying to live the way he wants us to denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following him day by day. And we can see how having the wrong motives can work out in some of the stories in Acts. In Acts chapter 2 and chapter 4, for example, we're told that members of the church would sell their possessions and the money would be used to help those who are in need, for example, 435. But then in Acts 5, we read the story of Ananias and Sapphira, This couple sold a field they owned, and they gave some of the money from the sale to the church. So far, so good. There was nothing wrong with what they'd done up to that point. But they had agreed to say that what they gave was the whole amount from the the sale. Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. They wanted the glory of having given sacrificially without actually having given everything. Their motives were wrong. And their view of what they were doing was wrong. 
They saw their act as deceiving men, but in reality, they were lying to God, as we see in verses 3 and 4 and verse 9. And they were judged for it, as we see in verses 5 and 10. Let's make sure we don't fall into that same trap. But to live by God's love, we also need to grasp as much about it as possible. And that's Paul's next request in in verses 18 and 19 of our passage today. God's love surpasses human knowledge. It's far bigger than anything we can get our finite minds around. Nevertheless, we have each, every single one of us, experienced God's love when he called us, when he saved us, and when he brought us into his family but we get a better knowledge of it corporately. Whereas, as Paul says in verse 18, with all the saints. While we come to faith in Christ as an individual, God is building a community of believers, and we're meant to be part of a community, a local church. We, as a body, should be supporting and assisting each other. We should be working, worshipping, and giving together We can learn from each other's experience of God. And together, our different insights, our different experiences, let us search out more of the truths in the Bible. In this way, as we learn together more about God and his love, as we grow in our faith, and as God works in our lives individually and collectively, we will become more like Jesus filled with all the fullness of God, as Paul prayed in verse 19. Paul's prayer so far, though, has been for his readers, and it came from the wonderful truths he's described in the first part of Ephesians 3, and his concern that they may not lose heart due to his suffering. But in the last two verses, verses 20 and 21, Paul's train of thought leads him to glorify God. He talks of the power of God being able to do far more than we can ask or imagine in verse 20. All that Paul has asked in the earlier verses are well within what God can do. And while we may think we're asking a big thing in a prayer, we need to recognise that God can and does do far more than we could ever dream to ask. Yet if we're honest we'd all admit as well, we also struggle at times with the feeling that our prayers aren't being answered. If God can do so much, why hasn't he? Whatever. If we look back at the beginning of verse 14, we see that the whole of Paul's prayer was based on his knowledge of God's purpose. John Stott comments on this, the indispensable prelude to all petition is the revelation of God's will. We have no authority to pray for anything which God has not revealed to be his will. That's why Bible reading and prayer should always go together. For it is in scripture that God has disclosed his will, and it's in prayer that we ask him to do it. God wants to give us good things when we ask. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 7 and 11, Ask, and it will be given to you. Search, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened. For everyone who asks receives, and everyone who searches finds, and everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. Is there anyone among you, if your child asks for bread, would give him a stone? Or if a child asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? 
But the other side of that same coin is that we need to ask in accordance with God's will. God isn't going to give us things that will not be good for us or that would work against his purpose and plan. Just as a father wouldn't give his young son a dangerous snake, even if he asked for it, God won't do that for us either. Even Jesus, when he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, submitted to the Father's will. In Matthew 26, 39, you read, My Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, but not what I want, but what you want. And then again in verse 42, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. There's a challenge for all of us in this passage from Ephesians. When we pray to each other, uh, pray for each other, what do we ask for? Do we focus on practical, physical needs and concerns? Or do we pray like Paul for spiritual growth and greater experience of God? Now, in reality, it isn't an either-or question. We should be praying for both. But let's make sure we do pray for each other's spiritual growth and maturity. And let's be bold in these prayers. There's nothing timid or tentative in Paul's prayer. It reflects his view of God as a loving father, a gracious and generous Lord who wants to give good things to his children. A God who is indeed able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine. Do we see God that way? Do our prayers reflect that that is the nature of our God? Or is our image of God too small? Are we limiting what we attempt for God because we don't see how big, how powerful, how amazing our Lord is? Let's all pray that we might together comprehend what is the breadth and length and height and depth and know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, so that we may be filled with all the fullness of God, as individuals and as a body of God's people here in this place. Amen.